whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever size your living space, you can do more than you think to lead a greener lifestyle. In the Sustainability Book Chat, we are talking to authors and experts about all the different ways that achieving sustainability is within your reach. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is really exciting because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics. I've said this lots of times in my books and other writing and stuff that gardening is going to give you a better return than anything that you could ever invest in in the stock market. And on top of it, it's going to help you eat healthier and get you some exercise, which you can't find on any stock market investment. Today, I am talking to Gary Pilarchek, who has a YouTube channel called The Rusted Garden Homestead, and he just wrote a book called The Modern Homestead Garden. Welcome to the show today, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a great topic that is near and dear to my heart. My first book, Home Garden Handmade, I talk about getting started with gardening because I just feel like it's something that like everyone should do, even if it's on a small scale. And I said, if you don't have anything else, like you can at least grow sprouts in your kitchen. My first successful crop I ever harvested was a jar of alfalfa sprouts and everybody has to start somewhere. (laughs) So there are a lot of books on gardening. And I love the fact that you are focusing on the homestead garden. And so I was wondering just right off the bat, like, why is it that you decided to focus on the homestead garden and how exactly do you define that? So it's not by size of land, but my hope is to get people started with sprouts. I usually say, let's start with herbs, but sprouts is even better. That's even something you can do in your kitchen and get people to kind of get the gardening bug and then progress to, you know, one acre, two acre, five acres or 10 acres. But the homestead's really about the home being more than a place to sleep, go out and buy food, go to work, come back and rinse and repeat. It's using your space for your mind, your body, your soul. I like what you said about the return to the stock market because gardening does of course give you fresh vegetables. It gives you exercise but it's just such a good routine to be in and go out and hear sounds and interact with nature that it pays dividends, you know, down the line. So the modern homestead is really blending our need to work nine to five, have health insurance, do all that, but looking at our homes a little bit differently and trying to grow food, be more self-sufficient on whatever little bit of space we have, but learn as you go. And as you get into a different place, you can expand your homestead to larger gardens, to livestock, to fruit trees, but you don't have to, you know, go off grid and disappear. You can just start with what you have. Yeah, exactly. So it's not all or nothing, you know, you can have a nice, happy medium there. So if somebody doesn't even have a yard, um, where are some of the places that they can grow? So a couple of things, um, and I was just talking with some friends about this the other day. There are a lot of people that have yards, but don't want a garden. So one thing you can do is check with family members, friends, look for people that may have space and you can strike a kind of relationship with them where you can build the garden, share the produce, they give the land and it's a nice way to start. You can also look in certain areas for community gardens and get space that way. A lot of them are really, really inexpensive. If you're not able to find anything like that, sometimes talking with your church, with your schools, they want gardens for, you know, their places and you can do that. Or, you know, you can start with sprouts or you can start with herbs on the windowsill. 
and just begin growing and learning how to do all that and progress again as you get more space down the line. Okay, great. And if somebody wants to start gardening, this is one of my challenges, even after doing it for so many years, you, you get a seed catalog and you have thousands of choices. Yeah. <laughs> what do you recommend? Like, what are some of the best vegetables for a beginner to start with? Well, first of all, I love seed catalogs and you're right. It's overwhelming. <laughs> you end up ordering more than you're ever going to grow or that you have space for. But gardening and using catalogs does give you a whole new world, the things that you don't find at the big box store. So they're, they're nice for that. But start with what you like. You know, most people like tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers. You can go with kale, collard greens. Peas are a wonderful vegetable to start with. Pole beans, those are all really easy with the sense of that you can grow peas when it's cooler. You can grow pole beans when it's warmer. You can grow them out of the same container, which I recommend about a 20 gallon container, which is shoulder wide, you know, a nice big hole. The, the biggest mistake people make is planting in two smaller containers, but get a nice large container. You can start with peas and with beans. You can also grow determinate type tomatoes. They get to a set height, maybe three feet, produce flowers and fruit, and then they die off. That's a nice contained tomato that you can grow. And peppers are wonderful to grow in containers too. You don't need a lot of space. You can put two in that larger container, 10 gallon container, 20 gallon container, and see if you like it, you know, and start from there. Also, you can throw in basil, cilantro, your herbs that a lot of people love and enjoy, and incorporate that into your cooking and stuff like that. I'm so glad you mentioned peas, because if someone has not ever had fresh peas right off the vine, they really have no idea what they're missing. Right. When we visited Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, a bunch of years ago, I remember the gardeners saying that they always grew lots of peas because that was Thomas Jefferson's favorite vegetable. And I thought that man was crazy <laughs> like because all I had ever had were those mushy peas in a can. Right. And then for some strange reason, one year I decided to grow peas in my garden and I had no idea when they were ripe. And so I was standing in the garden. I pulled one, I popped it open. I threw a couple peas in my mouth and I was instantly hooked. The light came on and I was like, oh my gosh, they are delicious. <laughs> I say the same thing. And, and that's the example I use a lot too, is you don't know what homegrown is until you grow peas. And when you get them when they're you know, just ripe or a little bit immature, they're like garden candy because they're so sweet. They're yeah. not like the green starchy stuff that you buy that's mushy. Um, even frozen peas, you know they're just loaded with sugars. And as soon as you pick them, they start breaking down. And by the time they get to us, they have a different flavor. So picking a pod right off the vine is, you know, like eating sugar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I called them the garden candy after that. Yeah. Like, I don't think we ever cooked any peas from our garden. Like we just ate all of them raw. Most of them in the garden. Like that was a snack, you know, while you're out there working in the garden, like, oh, I think I want some peas. <laughs> yeah. So another thing too, that can be kind of overwhelming for somebody who's just getting started is again, like if you're at the garden center or something and you see like this whole wall of fertilizers and plant foods and all that kind of stuff. And I know we just use compost. Uh, mm -hmm. If something seems like it needs a little extra boost, we'll give it some fish emulsion. When somebody's getting started, what do you recommend is the best way to feed their plants? So I agree with you. Like, you know, when I make videos and stuff like that, if I just said use compost, I would be cutting out a 
lot of people because they can't make it. But if you get to the point where you can really compost and break down manures and your weeds and grasses and stuff like that, that's wonderful. And that will take care of your garden. And then you have the granular organic fertilizers that are slow release. And most of those ingredients are usually like bone meal, blood meal, chicken manure, feather meal and stuff like that. So when you look at the granular organic fertilizers, read the ingredients and buy what is least expensive or fit your budget because they have the same things in there. And then fish emulsion, I do talk about a lot of too. That's the water soluble that I use primarily. And it's a five one one. So it's got the nitrogen, which really greens up and gets your vegetables going. So that works really well. But you're right. When you go to the big box stores or whatever, it's just overwhelming with fancy packaging and all these things like I think it was biosome you see, or it has, you know, these good microbes or this bacteria in it. That's true. The products aren't lying to you, but good garden soil already has that. So you're just looking for a basic granular fertilizer that fits your budget. And fish emulsion is a great way to get started. Okay. Now, when somebody actually decides to start building their garden, how do you recommend that they actually get started with planting, like digging in the dirt or lasagna gardening or raised beds? Correct. So they all work. You know, it's you end up at the same place, you know, at the end of the day. What I do recommend is going to whatever space you want to grow in, going there at eight in the morning, 10 a.m., 12 p.m., 2 p.m., and watching the sun. You want to make sure you get that full six hours minimum, but full sun where the sun is beating down, but really eight hours of sun. So that's the first thing is to pick a place that gets the sunlight. Um, And if you're doing this in spring before the leaves come, you got to pay mind to the trees and stuff like that. And you want a place that drains pretty well. But I would recommend just starting with the size of the garden that doesn't overwhelm you. So if it's a four foot by four foot raised bed, that's great. If it's a four foot by four foot, you know, square in the ground, that's good. If it's a big fabric pot, that's okay too. If you just want to do a row that they're really effective, you just mound the soil up, you know, start that way. Lasagna garden is great too, because sometimes if you just say you build like a, a raised bed with 12 inch sides, it can cost money to fill it with store-bought soil. So if you're able to put in different materials in there and just kind of sandwich it up like lasagna, that will work. But I would recommend doing that more in the fall and letting it kind of cook over the winter and then come springtime, you're ready to go. If you're going to start in the spring, you know, filling it with what you have, you know, your local soil, um, some store-bought stuff if you need it, but don't overstress about it. Yeah, that's really good advice. And to stay small. I think so many people initially mm. make their gardens so big that they get overwhelmed by the middle of the growing season and then the whole thing just gets overgrown. What about like if you have a balcony or a deck or patio? Is there anything people need to keep in mind in terms of container gardening? I think the most important thing for the container gardening, which I was maybe alluding to earlier, is that you want to match the pot size to the mature plant. Because when you get like a little tomato plant and pepper plant, they look cute and you're like, oh, this could just fit, you know, in this little pot. But very quickly, they get massive root systems. They get really tall and you might be able to keep them alive, but they're just not going to thrive. So the first thing is really looking for, you know, 10 gallon pots, 20 gallon pots, something that's a little bit bigger than you think and planting into that. 
the other thing you want to keep in mind is the sun, how it tracks and stuff like that. If you're going to plant containers, maybe getting rollers, because some people may move their pot, you know, from one side of the patio to the other side if they need to. That's the biggest tip, container size. And then keeping in mind in watering that when the plants are small and it's spring, you may only have to water every couple of days. But once full summer rolls in and those plants are larger, you may have to water two times or three times a day. You just don't want that root system to dry out because it kind of wreaks havoc on the plant. If you can manage that, you can grow just about anything. Yeah, that is a really good tip about the containers. And that's one of the things like you think, oh, it rained yesterday. It'll be fine. And if it was in the ground in your garden, it would be. But even I have trouble. I've started like setting so many reminders on my smartphone now. It's just crazy to remind me to do things like water the tomato plant on the deck. (laughs) So, yep. Right. It's easy. It's, you know, human to get busy and you, you miss a day or you miss a day and a half, but it might just be that day when it's 98 and your tomatoes just got to that size and the water's gone. Yeah, exactly. So is there anything that people need to keep in mind in terms of pests just on a basic level? Yes. So there's a myth that if you feed your plants right and you do everything right, then your plants are strong and you don't get problems. It's partially true. You know, stronger, more vibrant plants can fend off the diseases, but you will get pests and disease no matter what you do. And it's going to vary um, location to location and zone to zone. So what I recommend is one, keep a journal and kind of write down when you see pests and problems roll into your area. Or talk locally with people that have been gardening and know what comes into your area. The best way to deal with them is to do preventive spraying. So if you know you get something like uh, leaf spot or early blight or fungal diseases that get your tomato plant or powdery mildew that gets your cucumber plant, they tend to show up at the same time because the conditions of weather, humidity, warmth pretty much are consistent over the year. So you start spraying two weeks early, you prevent those diseases from taking hold. Same thing with pests. You can use peppermint oil, which I found to be really effective against spider mites, soft-bodied insects at repelling them under the leaves of my bean plants, my cucumber plants. And again, if you wait too long, those spider mites roll in and then you're fighting off an infestation. If you use the peppermint oil early, they just don't show up. So prevention and preventative spraying is the key for those pests and diseases. I love the fact that you included a chapter in the book about edible landscapes because there are so many vegetable plants that you would just never know that they could make beautiful landscaping plants. Like I know my favorite is okra because it looks like you have hibiscus plants in your yard. (laughs) So what are some tips that you have for edible landscapes? So, I I mean, I know we we just actually met today, but everything you're saying is <laughs> stuff that <laughs> I actually do with the peas. So the okra I use towards the front of the house on a big circle, it has a centerpiece because it does look like some exotic plant. The flowers are beautiful. The leaves are colorful. You can get red okra and you can mix them in. So they do stand out and you can eat the okra, obviously. I use strawberries instead of like using ivy, which can be invasive. Strawberry plants make a great ground cover. I like using the basic blueberry plant for my bushes because they will develop really nice leaves, especially if you give them the um, acidic soil they want or the more acidic fertilizer. And they look like any bush out there too, except again, you can go ahead and eat those. Using 
clumping blackberries in certain places do really well. They don't get out of control and spread everywhere. They just stay in a set place. And it's all, it's all beautiful canes that, you know, actually give some winter interest too when winter comes and the leaves fall. But you get beautiful blackberries off of there. And start with, you know, some of the stuff that you enjoy eating and see how you can incorporate that outside of the garden through your property. Awesome. So one of the questions that I tend to ask pretty much everybody on the show is what tips do you have to help somebody who's fairly new avoid a common problem? So I would go back to watering. This year I've been practicing even for myself and I've been doing this for decades is to really consistently water containers and my earth beds. So I would start with be prepared to water, but I would also go with start a lot smaller than you think, because you want to have the time to feed, water, tend the plants and putting that energy into tending, you know, three containers instead of 20 will pay dividends for you because then you'll just be rewarded with a better experience. And probably that's the best way to start. And then the next year you can add a little bit more to it and a little bit more to it that way and kind of expand outward but you don't want to get overwhelmed because once these plants come in, they produce really, really quickly. Yeah. Those are really great tips. And I know those are things I had problems with too, when I was new for the garden, we, we have a calendar in the kitchen and we write on there whenever there's rain, we write what the rainfall is because sure. you might think, Oh, it rained recently. And then you look on the calendar like, uh, no, it hasn't rained in a week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people don't know. It's like, when you're kind of building your beds out in the earth and stuff like that, it's that top four to six inches. It's really, really important. Like you can't compost two feet down or anything like that. So you don't have to worry about having the perfect soil. That's why lasagna gardening works well. That's why no dig gardens work well. You're concentrating that top four, six inches, but that top four, six inches of soil fills up with surface roots from your tomato plants, your cucumber plants. And that's the soil that gets beat down on by the sun. So you're really watering that top four inches. You want deep waterings, of course, but that top four inches is really, really key to having a successful garden. That's awesome. You've had so many excellent tips for people today. Can you remind us where people can find you online if they want to connect with you? Sure. So I've had a YouTube channel for actually, this might be the 10th year, 10 year anniversary, but you can find me on YouTube under the Rusted Garden or the Rusted Garden Homestead. And it's U-S-T-E-D. A lot of people think I say rustic, but it's the Rusted Garden. You can also find me on Facebook. I have a couple of groups. And if you search my name, Gary Polarchik, you'll find them. Or you can also search the Rusted Garden. Um, one of the cool things and what I love about this is I get to meet gardeners from around the globe. So if you follow me on YouTube, you leave a comment, I answer 90, 95% of them. So if you have questions, I can interact with you and help you out there. That's awesome. I love that. I wish somebody like you would have been around back when I was getting started. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is going to be really helpful for people. I had a wonderful time. Very much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's episode. You can find show notes at thriftyhomesteader.com slash book chat, as well as a transcript. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also find Thrifty Homesteader on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. See you next week on Sustainability Book Chat.